This podcast is brought to you by Premiere, the UK's leading Christian media organisation. As we approach the end of our financial year, we want to remind you that podcasts like this are only possible due to the generosity of supporters like you. You could help reach millions of people throughout the year through shows just like this. Make your best gift today at premierchristianradio.plus. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio Good afternoon and welcome to this week's edition of The Profile. I'm Justin Briley, your host for the first half of the programme and in the second half of the show, Sam Hales will be taking the reins. Well, this is the programme brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. I'm the senior editor. Sam Hales is the deputy editor. We're both talking to people who are both featured in the January edition of the magazine. If you'd like a free sample copy of the latest magazine, premierchristianity.com slash free sample and of course the profile available not just here on the radio but also as a podcast to listen back to whenever you want do look it up on your favorite podcast software or visit our website premierchristianradio.com slash the profile two exciting guests to bring you this week first of all i'm going to be sitting down with jeremy vine well-known broadcaster for the bbc both on radio and tv he's going to be telling me about his faith and life his broadcasting career and more besides and then in the second half of today's program sam hales will be speaking to cardinal vincent nichols leader of catholics in england and wales and as i mentioned both these interviews featured in the pages of the latest edition of premier christianity magazine so first of all time to meet jeremy vine and I was able to catch up with him in the hallowed halls of BBC Radio 2. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me on the programme. It's great to talk to you. And you, you've been something of a hero as far as I'm concerned in terms wow. of your, your media career. Oh, my um, goodness. Uh, so, so it's a bit of a, a fanboy moment to, be able to, <laughs> to meet you in person. Um, but we're, we're here in the Radio 2 offices. Um, this is where you've spent the last get, nearly 20 years, isn't oh, it? Man, um, is something it? like that. Well, 15 maybe. Well, I think it's 15. You know, let's just think about that because I this a few months ago I realised I got to the vital watershed of fourteen and a half years. That's right. Why is that important? Because it's halfway to Jimmy Young's twenty nine. Wow. He go. did twenty nine, so he's streets ahead of me. Well, who knows how long you know this could go oh, on for? But th- next week. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we could, we'll talk about the radio side, we'll talk about the TV, we'll talk about the career. But I do, with the, this interview, the profile, we always go back to the beginning. Um, you grew up in a Christian family, didn't you? Yeah. Um, how was that experience? Because in your new book, um, which is called, just for the record, What I Learned, What My Listeners Say mm-hmm. and Why We Should Take Notice, you do spend some time dwelling on your childhood and, yeah. and, and how that formed you as a person. Um, tell us a bit about... What, what it was like growing up in your family and the faith there. Yeah, my parents have got, they're both still alive. My, my dad's a bit unwell at the moment, but they've got a very vivid faith. It's real. Um, so the key thing I associate with them and their faith is kindness. I think they were probably, when I was growing up, they would be have been quite, maybe a bit dogmatic in the sense that it was quite, it, you know, it was a, a sort of, I feel I'm sort of conscious my mum listens to your radio station all the time. So, mum, if you're listening, forgive me for this. You won't like this. But there's a, you know, the church they go to is what you would call low church, Church of England. There's some tambourines. Certainly people have put hands in the air. It would have been called charismatic when that was trendy in the 70s. 
it's the thing where if someone had installed a stained glass window in the church, it would have been regarded as an act of vandalism. So it's that sort of church where it's it's stripped back and the mm-hmm. and you can see the ideology. I was just thinking mm-hmm. about this the other day when we had Luther's 500th thinking, yeah, I get it. You know, if you take out the candles and the incense and everything, you take out the stained glass, you take out absolutely everything, take out the liturgy. What are you left with? The answer is you're left with either, you either believe it or you don't. <laughs> so you can't cling on to all the furniture. And yeah. that was there. That was my childhood. You know, it was it was based around the church. We had to go every Sunday to like, I think I finally managed to break clear as I saw it then when I was 15 and the lot of very kind people in that community in Cheam in Surrey. Mm, mm. It was a church that and it's part of the reason why it was very turbocharged was that they knocked it down and rebuilt it. Or in fact, they actually, they built it in a field. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was built by contributions by local people. It was then rebuilt in the late eighties or maybe the early nineties. And it was sort of million pound, great monster thing, you know, with a big cross on the top. And I think when people actually pay their own money to build a church, they're very committed. And yeah. my parents are. They, and, and now they're much older, nearly 80. You know, the community in that church is really important. I found myself, the problem I had as a child, to be honest with you, and I, again, if you're listening in the church, please don't take this too badly. <laughs> Every sermon ended up with the threat of hell and if you don't repent, you, you're you mm. going there, mm. right? And I sort of heard that quite a lot. By the time I was 15, I reckon I'd heard that two and a half thousand times. And I began to sort of have difficulties trying to work out where I was on that spectrum because I'd never had a big conversion moment. Mm. So I think I felt very jealous of people who could come to it fresh. You Did you kind of manage to get through to your teens as a Christian, quote unquote, or was it something you basically left behind in i i'm afraid in as much as i was a christian it was because i was scared of hell and and i'm now slightly in my 50s now thinking i need to hear a bit more of hell (laughs) because on thought for the day no one ever talks about it anymore no one has mentioned hell on thought for the day for years and but but as a teenager i was it scared even when i went up to university it scared the living daylights out of me i must say so from that point of view it worked very well is that that love and fear are not really Mm. compatible you know and i used to yeah, I mean, we're getting into my, this sort of teenage mind, but I mean, there were there were verses in the Bible I really struggled with when it says you you those if you say Lord Lord but you don't obey what my, mm. I say, and I'm thinking, what does that mean? And then you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. There's nobody who does that. Mm. Nobody in the world, not mm. one person who does that. So these are seem like a series of impossible yeah. thresholds, and I gave up really. We'll come back to how you rediscovered to some extent your faith yeah to a big extent yeah yeah. um but it's also worth noting of course that uh, you have a very famous brother too tim vine a comedian extraordinaire he's been a guest on this program and indeed uh, an interviewee in our magazine uh, on several occasions um you kind of took quite different paths, though, in the end. You, you say in the book that he never quite learned how to grow up, basically, or didn't want to grow up in yeah. some way. Um, what, what was going on with him that meant you went off in this very serious journalistic route and, and he didn't? Well, I was, I was, I, I think, probably more small C conservative. I just did what I was told some of the time. I was a very difficult teenager, don't get me wrong. Um, or I didn't, I mean, I never broke the law or took drugs or anything like that. So it was, it was cheem, remember? So mm. rebellion was sort of, you know, not watching Bruce Forsyth. That it was, was on the cheem level. Yeah, it was not yeah. wearing corduroys <laughs> more than three days a week. Um, 
No, I mean, I did conventional things and, and then, you know, did his BBC career. And I think Tim, I'm guessing, but I think he watched it and thought, well, he doesn't want to constantly be in the same lift shaft as me and two floors below. So he's just going to change. He's not even going to go into another lift shaft. He's going to go somewhere completely else. Mm. And he, he went into the, the most different line of work you could imagine, which is I was trying to make people, I suppose a journalist tries to make people cry and he was trying to make people laugh. Um, so we're serious and he's silly and you know you you couldn't in, in the end actually what's funny is that I think our our lives have converged a lot because people often I mean my show on Radio 2 is, is an mm. entertainment mm. show primarily so I think we're in the same thing really. did you get on as brothers growing yeah, up yeah we did we were a little bit competitive with each other the thing about Tim and this is not fully appreciated is he's leaving aside his comedy he's the most stunningly talented musician in terms of songwriting creativity and he was spending his whole time as a teenager basically playing the piano he just taught himself and then he sat there and wrote these most beautiful songs mm. and I, I could never really handle how good he was at it you know I was always saying oh let me write the lyrics to this one thinking that was my thing but it it wasn't really. Um, he was just amazing. Didn't you form a band at one time? Oh, yeah, we had a band. We had a punk band called The Flare Generation, which was basically the idea that Cheem had a punk band, but it was such an unfashionable place <laughs> with such an unfashionable punk band that they were wearing flare trousers when everyone else was, you know... It, it was a somewhat and, ironic name. Yeah, yeah, it was. all we were doing was singing about university sweatshirts and flare trousers, and <laughs> we were a ridiculous punk band. And we got, actually, funnily enough, the first time I came into this building was as a teenager with Tim and another friend called Simon Williams to do an interview for Radio 1 about this new band in Cheam. Wow, well, you had a measure of success Oh, yeah, then. we were on TV and I stuff. I think you were yeah. in Smash It's magazine. Smash It's magazine. We were Pretty on sure Danny my Baker. my had that in the 1980s. <laughs> yeah. 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 Danny Baker interviewed us on um, the London 6 o'clock show on TV, wow. which is something I never cease to remind him <laughs> of. The madness, you know, the sheer madness. Who knows what could have been if, if yeah, things well, had think, taken a different course. Yeah, well, Tim, of course, in a way, became a rock star himself because comedy is the new rock yeah. and roll. And But we tried our very best to to make it as <laughs> as pop stars. And we had several bands, actually. We were constantly... I, I played the drums, Tim played everything. And, yeah, it was good. It, it was fun. It was the lovely childhood in Cheam. Yeah. We had it very settled around the church. Mm. And I do think, going back to the church, that the, the, the way that it inspired all of us, because my sister's an actress, is that we go there every Sunday and the whole room falls silent so some bloke can get on stage and say something. And it, I think it, the message it gave us was nothing to do with the Bible. It gave us the message that if you find a stage, yes. you should immediately walk onto it <laughs> and start speaking. And command it. Yeah, yes. and I, think, I yeah. genuinely think it, it created a performance gene. Wow, that's interesting. Um, just tell us briefly as well, there's a lovely section in the book where you talk about the treehouse your dad built for you and the way you would while away many days and nights there. Um, somehow this has almost become symbolic of the love that your parents had for you. What, what was it about this treehouse that particularly spoke to you in your childhood? Well, I was going through photos in, in my parents' house, and particularly with my father in mind, because my, my father's, you know, coming... You know, he's in a difficult phase of his life, let's just mm. put it like that. Um, and uh, he's a lovely, lovely man, Guy Vine. And I found this photo of a treehouse down the end of the garden. And it's more than just a treehouse. It's like a tree complex, you know. So there's, a tr there's two trees involved. There's a cabin on stilts. There's a slide. There's all kinds of stuff. And I was just remembering all the time my dad spent building this thing. 
and how he brought his boys and Sonia into the building process and how our summers were you know spent with we'd have a plan and we'd mm. draw it and then we'd I'd be given some nails to hammer in and Tim would be given some others and it was all quite laborious and in the end we had this treehouse and I when I saw this photo I thought and it was in an old house that we moved away from again in Cheen and I just thought the treehouse symbolizes my father's love because love is a function of time and the treehouse mm. took time and I remember we're very near All Souls Church which I used mm. to go to a lot and there was a guy there called John Stott who's one of the greatest ever preachers ever 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 and he I remember did a Christmas sermon once and the church was so full it, they had to fill out the basement as well and his his message basically in the sermon was that the the reason that Christ's life is so powerful is because it was a sign of God giving him giving us his time and one of the tragedies of parents now is that mm. they give presents uh, instead of themselves and I, and the treehouse to me meant that my father gave me time and the second thing is that it also was and this is very interesting mm. was um analog so if you touch it you get a splinter <laughs> and there's so little in the world now you can get splinters from absolutely and i think you know my whole childhood was i would stroke the neighbor's cat in a cardigan knitted by my mum and then i get earth under my nails when i tried to dig a little hole in the flower bed and but that's but the question all gone. Is, have you managed to build a treehouse for your daughters? Or? I don't have. In London, you don't have a garden. <laughs> you don't have room. You look for at a the A to Z. Yes, seriously, yes. and see how much green there is. There's nothing. Unless I try and build it in Hyde Park without permission. But is the principle there? In the a principle, sense? of course, of course, of yes. course. It's time. It's yeah, time. Yeah. And I, I take my oldest to Chelsea. Um, so one of the things that I think we would have benefited for from maybe as I got into my difficult teenage years was some sort of shared activity with my mm. parents that was not mm. anything to do with church. life at home yeah. or church. Yeah. Yeah. And I went bowling with a, my dad a couple of times. and I remember really enjoying it, Charrington Bowl, and thinking, <laughs> this is nice. This is not like the normal father-son mm. thing. Mm. And so with my oldest, I've, one thing we've done is we've got Chelsea season tickets and we go oh, wow. to all the home yeah. games because I've had them for a while. And maybe football isn't naturally Martha's thing, but gosh, she now sits beside me. When are they going to bring on Hazard? It looks like Rudiger's got no pace today. What's happened to the midfield? Is something out of shape? That you know, it's really interesting. I think it's really it's it's a great thing, and we sometimes we just sit there and watch the game. Let's talk about your glittering career, um, (laughs) which has encompassed so much. Um, Obviously, your journalism with the BBC as an Africa correspondent, Newsnight, the Radio Two show, Eggheads. Uh, even strictly, um, and there's not many people who can put that on their CV. <laughs> but um, if you had to choose between TV and radio, which would it be? It would be radio for the practical reason that it gives you longevity. Mm. The thing about TV is that it's all about novelty, and radio is all about consistency and constancy. Television is an announcement, and radio is a conversation. Mm. So if you are in it for the long haul, radio is the one. Yeah, it's nice to have done. I mean, I I was looking, we did something on Points of View recently about which are the five longest running BBC shows of all time. This is quite a good test, actually. The number (laughs) one is, I think it's Panorama. And then we've got The Sky at Night, Blue Peter. I think maybe Points of View, Doctor Who, something. I thought, that's amazing. I've done two of them. So You've done two of the biggies. Yeah, yeah. Of, of the longest running. Yeah. And that's, but that's very unusual in television mm. to have, have programmes run for that long. It you is, know? yeah. And you know, I do Panorama now, so I can't, I can't claim to be doing that now. But 
Yeah, I, I think in television you always get bounced out. So with radio, and particularly with the, the show you've been doing since, what, 2002 now, I Three, think? Yeah. 2003, um, Jeremy Vine show. The book is really about the listeners. Um, what I learned is telling their stories and all the, the crazy anecdotes that you, <laughs> you've gathered over the years. I mean, do you actually write some of these down? If someone comes on with a crazy story, do you sort of save that somewhere and make sure that you keep it for posterity? I've, yeah, I do. Uh, well, we keep we have a very good clipping system for sound. So, mm. and if this is good advice for you, if you do a radio show, if it, if it happens and you think it's good, clip it then. Don't yeah. wait for six mm. months because you can't remember no, it. No, absolutely. So we clip stuff on on the spot, and um, also I keep comments that w- were made. I mean, there was some, we had one the other day that this old old guy rang in and said that. He, he's he's attached a rape alarm to the flowers he's left on his wife's grave to stop yobs stealing them. Crumbs. I just thought, gosh, that's a totally <laughs> British story, you know. And then we had a, a guy in his 90s ring and says the only way to deal with the Brexit negotiations is to send in the SAS. So I always note these things down, you know. Um, there are and, I, and the th- joy of, of yeah. the... You know, it's so spontaneous, it's so mm, real. Mm. You're mentioning TV and radio. Mm. With TV, the problem is you cannot get the equivalent of the caller yeah. on a radio show. Yeah. If you want to have someone on the air, you've got to get a spotlight into their house and put makeup on them. And as soon as you do that, they become someone else. You know, as they, they just don't say what they really want to say. And the show has become phenomenally successful, over 7 million listeners, uh, which is... A weekly ahead- figure, by the way. But yeah, Sure, but nonetheless it's it's you know outclassing many of the, the big <laughs> highbrow shows and that sort of thing at least in terms of popularity so um with that many listeners though do you feel like you know who your listener is i we, we've we used to and i say we meaning me and the editor talk about this a lot phil jones and we decided we mustn't ever think that now because they keep surprising us yes. you know there'll be stuff that they that they say and do that we're not ready for so you mentioned or we were talking earlier about lollipop ladies which has came up on the show now you would not think that anyone could object to lollipop ladies but it turns out <laughs> as far as we Someone can tell out there well <laughs> more than that i mean most of the callers were furious about lollipop ladies because they they think that they're holding up traffic you know and i did i thought gosh okay i must i, I need to be mm. careful but mm. make assumptions that everyone thinks lollipop ladies are a good thing they don't we had a thing where i think this is some years ago a guy did some pharmaceutical experiment that went wrong and mm. swelled up and I think mm. he might even have died actually it's called the elephant man um, and the main source of comment was people saying hey, can you tell me how we, we do these tests because we want to earn some money doing them so I just think never second guess them and in my experience because I, I spent a, a few years in my early years doing broadcasting on a breakfast show finding the thing that was going to make people call in and frequently is the most mundane sort of everyday down to earth thing it's not the big political issues necessarily no, it's right. it's the thing that they absolutely. confront on their doorstep yeah. and that winds them up so with us uh, yeah if we say should tony blair not ever speak in public again you get a massive response everyone mm. seems to say yes for whatever reason um and anything to do with cycling right massive which of it, course you well, you, are, I, you, I you have to, your own personal I know, experience well, of <laughs> i cycle only to try not to be obese at the age of 82 but apparently that's not a good enough reason because i have to constantly justify my presence in the first two and a half feet of the road and even now i say that to you some of your listeners will already be throwing their radios out the window so i never mention i'm a cyclist um angling for some reason angling i don't know why right okay and any story we had a story once where fishing. an right. angler said he was 
at a river site, riverbank, and a cyclist cycled behind him and broke all his rods. And I thought, oh God, we've got, you know, this is now the Third <laughs> World War. We've got both stories coming together. It's like when we had the the woman who was stopped from breastfeeding on a speed awareness course. Again, that's two oh, wow. classic yeah. themes. Two. The man who was the paedophile who was having his guide dog taken away because he was using it to lure children. I mean, that was another one which combines... Crumbs. Combines themes, yeah. But the biggest theme of all, actually, is what I would call IGW, Intergenerational Warfare, which is to do with... uh, Let's just try and put this crisply. Old people say young people don't work hard enough, and young people say old people have stolen everything. (laughs) Houses, pensions, you know, holidays... Oh, the destroyed the NHS and the planet on the way out. And it's it's really, and I'm not taking a side here, but it really, yeah, really yeah. is insoluble. 25-year-olds can't buy a house, and 75-year-olds say that's because they're not working hard enough. And the big lesson you seem to draw out, in fact, you devote a special bolded page-only paragraph to it in the book, is that we're now living in an age where people don't seem to trust the experts anymore. Mm. It, and And what you've found out through your listeners is that it personal experience is where it's at and maybe slightly to it might go some way to explaining why the most unusual things have happened politically in the last couple of years trump brexit and so on i started writing the book in 2015 because i was wondering how many calls i'd taken and i did this little calculation and i worked out it was just about to be twenty five thousand. Mm. so i thought there must be something to take away from this and then we had trump and then we had brexit so it then all sort of came together and i think what's changed is and the reason this is happening now is that you can if you are an individual and you've got a personal story you can now radiate that story in the most incredible way through mm. technology mm. you can also accessorize it with information because people are able to google everything now so if you let's say you want to find out about lyme disease you you've got a choice you could go to a doctor and ask him or her or you could go to somebody with lyme disease and actually these days that's quite a hard choice we had a, in this very office i was talking to my editor a few days ago and he said we're, we're doing an item on psychopathy what makes a psychopath? Got a choice for you, Jeremy. Do you want to interview a very eminent professor of psychology from Cambridge or a psychopath? And it's just a no-brainer. You know, of course, I'm going to say I'll interview a psychopath. Right. Sure. And, yeah, it's a massive thing. And the, 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 the one page, I mean, I just write one paragraph and give it one page because it's so important, is that we used to be in the age of astronomers, which is that we ask experts to describe the world from a distance. We're now in the age of astronauts, which is that we ask people who've walked on the moon to describe it. Mm. And the problem with that is that you can walk on the moon and not even know which planet you're on, let alone have any context. Yeah. So interesting world. It is. Um, Going alongside this, of course, has been your own faith journey. And we started at the beginning of the interview and, and you'd sort of found certain aspects of Christianity, especially the Christianity you were presented with as a young man, confusing you weren't sure about the way well anything too clear too well okay maybe too black and white in that sense but you walked away from it for a while you say and i think you say it was really only in your 40s that you really feel like you came back i think there was a sort of moment in your early 20s when you thought you had some sort of experience but then again sort of things drifted what what was it that means that today you feel like you can say to someone if they ask you yes i'm a christian I think, oh, well, I think you've got to have a, a combination of, of subjective and objective truth. I think you've got to be at least halfway convinced that 
some of what the Bible says is true. I mean, <laughs> the New Testament story is quite fundamental. It's a bit difficult to, 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 to sort of do any of it without believing that there was a resurrection, for example. And then there's got to be, I think, a sort of consolation, I think I would describe it as a sort of subjective, and this is the, the least provable thing mm. I'll ever say as a journalist, but some sort of sense that you're loved by God or that your life has meaning or that Christ is real. But that doesn't, I don't think that that's something that's very, it's very possible to communicate. I think the problem with, with when I was growing up in the church that I was in was that it was very much down to feelings instead right. of facts. And that I've been to other churches where it's, a lot of it's down to doctrine and mm. teaching and learning. And in the end, I think it's some sort of combination. It's some sort and of happy may, medium. Well, yeah, it is. And I think a lot of, throwing a lot of doubt and a lot of uncertainty, that all helps as well. And just don't be too gimlet-eyed. Because I mean, people you, you, who seem to know everything are scary. You say that, that's the main thing you say, really, in the segment you do devote to this in the book, that, that what you've learned is that faith and doubt are not in any way enemies. They, in fact, very much part and parcel I of think the same so. thing. I just, I quite, I do like a lot of faith and I quite like a bit of doubt. I just, <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a recipe, but I suppose I, 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 people who are listening to the radio think, oh, I'm not there because I can't quite believe. I think, no, you're there. The mm. fact that you're even having that thought. And I, I'm, I'd be the worst evangelical ever. I just would, because I'd constantly be saying, God, well, I don't know if it's true either. Gosh, that's both of us then. You know, I, I would be completely unable to do that thing of, it is definitely true and here's why. Mm, mm. There was somebody saying um, that, oh, I think it was C.S. Lewis saying, is, is he, what's the, 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 the famous Christ thing, is he a lunatic or is he a liar? Liar, is he lunatic lord? or lord. Okay, yeah. well, <laughs> yeah, fine. So he's not a lunatic, we rolled that out. He's not a liar. So he's no. I sort of the logic is: there's about ten things he could be. Sure. Um, it's not just those three mm, driving mm. me towards this conclusion. Yeah, mm. With this very flawed logic, As, there's been a problem I think with basically with evangelicals for a long time, which they just think it's so blatantly obvious. It's right. not. It's very, very yeah. unobvious. Yeah. And and in that also sense, I think as well, I would say that you. I, I, although it's very untrendy to say this for evangelicals, um, it's. You've got to look at a little bit of the person's behaviour. I mean, if somebody is a complete tosser, they're probably not very Christian. Yes. I mean, are you, are you thinking of the way that some evangelicals have got, well, a lot of evangelicals have got behind Don, people like Donald Trump in the USA and that kind of thing? I, I haven't even gone that far. I just think it's better to be kind than to be right mm. a lot of times in mm. life. Mm. And there's a bit too much preoccupation with being right. I tell you who I really admire hugely is Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury. I did an, he asked me if I'd come down to Worcester and interview him for mm. a, an event. And to my surprise, good old Bishop of Worcester, John Inge, I think his name is, mm. um, lovely man, had organised this incredible crowd of about two or 3,000 people. It was amazing. Mm. And we spoke for an hour and a half. And... Justin, the Archbishop, was so frank about his life, yep. his doubts, the complexities. As you know, he's lost a child when mm, he was mm. younger uh, in a car accident, of all things. And I think that stayed with him. Um, and he just came totally three-dimensional. And I thought, this is the kind of Christian I want to be. It's somebody yeah. he's not. you can't really label what he is. It sounds like he had quite a, 
a large influence on you in that sense. He did well. Yeah. He meeting him in that session, I thought this is one of the most sp- powerful spiritual occasions I've been to. He'd be horrified if he heard me say that because <laughs> I was supposed to be interviewing him. But I actually, we we sort of took his faith and we looked at it from all angles, mm. upwards, downwards, and sideways, in front of three thousand people. They then asked questions, and when it was a difficult question, he sounded uncertain. Now. The the opposite of that, which is that when it's a difficult question, you sound completely certain, is really terrifying. And I just think I really like him. I really admire him. I think he's a great guy. Um, just finally, um, you, you said a while ago, I think it was 2009, that uh, it's almost socially unacceptable to speak about Christianity in public. Do you, do you still feel that way? Is, is it still hard, especially in your line of work, to, I can't to be really. open about I mean, I don't really give many interviews like this because I just think um, it's it's fundamentally quite boring <laughs> 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 to hear about what's going on. It's like people describing their illnesses. <laughs> um, talk about somebody's faith. But, I, yeah, obviously, as a journalist, I can't... It's like I can't go on the air and say I think there should be cycle routes in half of London, although I do, um, because it will just wind up motorists. And yeah. it's the same way that if I go on and I say I think Jesus Christ is alive today or something it'll just wind up all the atheists so I have to slightly take of my course. cards off yeah. the table that's, I mean that's but, all I really but generally in the media world do you, yeah, do you find that, that it's 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 hard it's difficult or I think easy? It's, there's, a, there's a sort of 1970s Christianity that is that is probably um, not very trendy now and that's probably a good thing mm. no I'm I think we are actually in a funny way I think this new digital world is tailor-made for modern Christians because it's shaped around the individual so even when you turn on your BBC iPlayer it will be recommending programs it knows you will like and in the end isn't Jesus Christ wasn't he digital in the sense that he he shaped his offer around the individual. Zacchaeus was told to come down from the tree. You're dining at my house tonight. I'm dining at your house tonight. Sorry, Zacchaeus was told to come down from the tree and he said, I'm dining at your house tonight. Isn't that the ultimate in the digital offer? Hmm. And he was the ultimate communicator as well. Uh, yeah, it's an issue of whether he would have been on Twitter or not. Uh, <laughs> and if he was, would he have been trolled? Um, I don't well, know. Yeah, Um well, look, it's been such fun talking to you <laughs> on the programme today. Thank you. We didn't um, even mention dancing, my goodness. Well, I know. We, we didn't get to Strictly. We didn't get to Eggheads. We didn't... Um, I think I should say something about Strictly, because um, I, I hadn't said this before, but it's quite funny. Um, I had this thought while I was on Strictly that maybe Strictly is like life, because what happens is you're in it, and it's incredible, mm. and you you learn about yourself, and you learn about everything around you, and you see around you that people are being eliminated. They're suddenly just disappearing. And you never think it will happen to you. And as this show goes on, you get more and more just lodged in it. And it becomes a routine. It's week six, week seven, week eight. And then suddenly, bang, you're gone. That's what life is like. It's completely analogous to life. And then when you're outside looking in, you think, did that even happen? So I suddenly realise, here we are all trucking along. And it's just like Strictly. And at some point... I'm afraid the judges will take us out. And I guess you've got to make the most of the moment that you, you That's do That's probably have. it. Yeah, I keep dancing. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jeremy, Thank for you. being my guest on The Profile today. Jeremy Vine's book, What I Learnt, What My Listeners Say, and Why We Should Take Notice, published by Orion. You can get hold of it at all good book places. You're listening to The Profile with me, Justin Briley, handing over in the next section of the programme to Sam Hales, who's also been out and about, speaking this time to Cardinal Vincent Nichols, leader of Catholics in England and Wales. He'll be with us in just a moment's time. 
We're on air with broadcasting legend Jeremy Vine in the latest Premier Christianity magazine as he tells us how he lost his faith and then found it again and life behind the mic on his radio and TV programmes. Plus, we profile three of the UK's fastest-growing churches as they share their secrets on why their congregations are multiplying members. And as 2018 begins, read about five spiritual practices that could renew your relationship with God in the new year. All that plus news, reviews and your favourite columnists. Ask for a free copy of the January edition, premierchristianity.com slash freesample. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. This show is brought to you in association with the magazine that I help put together. It's Premier Christianity magazine. If you would like a free sample copy of the latest issue, why not head to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. We'll be delighted to send you a free copy. But today on the show, I'm speaking to Cardinal Vincent Nichols. He's the leader of Catholics in England and Wales. And for today's show, producer Chris and I took a trip to Westminster and recorded this interview, which you're about to hear in the Cardinal's office. So let's listen in to what happened. Cardinal Vincent Nichols, thank you for joining us on The Profile. My pleasure. We always like to start on the show um, asking about a person's early life. So I wondered if you wanted to share some stories from life growing up in Liverpool. Well, I was born into a family which grew to have mother and father and three boys. Uh, I'm the middle of the three. And our life was, I have to say, stable, uh, happy, not particularly well off. Um, Holidays were very local. Our means of transport were bikes. Um, Schools we went to were nearby. And so, in a way, it was quite probably a typical small family life in the 40s, 50s and the 60s in the north side of Liverpool in Crosby. Um, We were very much part of the Catholic community. Uh, So all my early memories of faith uh, are rooted at home and in the local Catholic parish of St. Peter and Paul's in Crosby. So in a way, that was the whole environment in which I grew. Mm. Um, We lived in a a road that was a bit of a cul-de-sac, and opposite the house was a a school playing field on which we trespassed constantly and played football, played cricket, uh, with with all the lads in the street. And there were probably about 15 boys living in the street. So we, we got to know each other extremely well. There were, I think, one other Catholic family. So we just mixed. We were lads together. Occasionally we talked about why we were going to this church and most of the others weren't going to any. Um, but it was it was um, just normal mm. living, really, in which there was great fun, uh, a very clear structure of what we did each day. And I had, a, I think a childhood and a family life that has given me a fundamental stability. You mentioned that you'd have to sometimes explain why you were going to church. How did you 
explain that as a teenager, perhaps to your friends who didn't understand why would you go to church? Why would you follow God? What was the kind of early experience of, of faith for you? I think the um, probably the explanations were pretty short. You know, it was probably like that's what Catholics do. Uh, it wasn't very exploratory or profound. Uh, but I suppose the the second part of your question, what were my early experiences of faith, is uh, is more complex. Is is more. Uh, searching and when I look back now I think the foundations uh, for me would have these elements in them we prayed as a family uh, and in that sense uh, a pattern of prayer was the foundation I vividly remember for example that every time we were about to go to sleep every night. My mother or father uh, would come into the bedroom that I shared with my brother, my younger brother, and they would kiss us goodnight and they would make the sign of the cross on our forehead. They would give us a parent's blessing. So each day ended in that wraparound with God, as it were. And so... The reality of God's love was inseparable from the reality of my parents' love and expressed as a family in prayer. And then there was the church bit as well, going to Mass on a Sunday, and we would assist at the altar. We were altar boys. Now, you know, that might sound very pious, but actually that was probably some of the less pious bits because it was a job and we wanted to do the job well. And it was a job that was done with fun, actually. There were two younger priests in the parish, and they just had great fun. So there was a lot of teasing. There was a lot of um, knowing, if you like, that the foundations of faith were so clear and so firm that on the expressions of it, you could mingle a bit of fun Mm. in with it. And there was nothing disrespectful. There was nothing that trivialized that faith in fact it humanized it a lot mm. so i've never i've never felt a dichotomy as it were between uh, the richness and the fun of life and my faith mm. they've always kind of gone together um but prayer and community and that sense of human richness i think are the, probably my first experiences of faith do you ever wonder how your life would be different if you didn't have a Catholic upbringing and if you hadn't followed the faith all the way through to where you are now? That's quite hard. It's like asking me to undo myself and wrap myself up in another skin. Um, it's become I such a huge part of your life, I suppose, well, both yeah, both in terms of what just, you do day to day and, yeah, and who you are yeah. as a person. I'm like a stick of rock with Blackpool <laughs> going all the way through it, I'm afraid. I, I would like to think, I would like to think that had I not been brought up in this way, I would have come by some other route to the same faith mm. uh, because it is such a treasure and it is such a gift. Uh, and I would find it hard Um, to think of life as anything other than a rather disconnected series of a search for pleasure and entertainment and achievement if it wasn't 
there a faith that kind of holds it all mm. together mm. and gives it an underlying sense and purpose. So, no, I, w- I really would hope that I would have found my way here by some other route. This is a, a big question, but when you look at the Catholic Church in England and Wales, what is your feeling? What is your vision? How would you describe the moment of time that we're in and your hopes and your prayers for, for the future of the Catholic Church in, in this area? There's no time that is perfect, and this time certainly isn't perfect. But it is the time we're given. And uh, in my experience now of you know, 60, 65 years of consciously living as a Catholic, um, I see strengths, and some of the strengths I see that, that the Catholic Church is, is strongly committed to the common good, to the good of everybody. I think when I was growing up, it was a more self-contained community. It was only slowly coming out of centuries of, of initially persecution and then strong discrimination. So we kind of protected ourselves. But now I think there's a genuine sense that people of the Catholic faith serve in this community at every corner and at every level. And we have, I think a much stronger notion that uh, the fundamental vision of what it is to be human that is given to us in faith makes us well-placed to make a good contribution to society today. But that service that we want to give has always to be rooted in faith. So in this diocese, for example, uh, we were reckoning up in order to render our accounts to the Charity Commission, that in this Diocese of Westminster we have something like 840 different outreach programmes addressing need. But what's most important and and I'm particularly committed to is that those things are rooted in faith and expressive of faith uh, because that's what gives them not just their distinctive characteristic but their more profound quality. So I, I, I'm pleased at that. I'm pleased that there is this genuine openness in the Catholic community towards the good of society. I think the, the picture, if I look more widely across the country, varies quite a bit. Uh, in this diocese in Westminster, um, we're trying to expand churches and add bits on and put an extra bit here because they're not big enough. In other parts of the country, I know, uh, the numbers of Catholics are falling. That's partly because people move away. For example, two weeks ago I was in the southwest. And in the southwest of England, in the counties of Dorset and um, Devon and Cornwall, I think Catholics are 1% of the population. Mm. Practicing Catholics are 1%. So that's a very different situation than it is here. Uh, but it's partly to do with the movements of people within the country and it's partly to do with the arrival here of Catholics from all over the world. Mm. If I go into a Catholic parish in London, I can be pretty sure that I will meet people from 20 or 30 different nationalities. So a Catholic community looks like the street. 
You know, if you walk around the streets of London, there are people from all over the world. That's what a Catholic parish looks like. I wanted to move internationally as well and talk about Pope Francis because many people have commented that this is a Pope who is very widely loved, respected, not just by Catholics, but by many outside of the Catholic Church. Does that translate to, to your ministry and when you meet people, whether they be Catholic or not, is there a sense of perhaps renewed warmth towards the Catholic Church because so many people see Pope Francis as a figure who they look up to and really respect in a, a very deep way? I think you're absolutely right. Uh, he is remarkable and he has mastered or uses very well all the modern means of communication to get an essential message vividly portrayed and understood. And he's done that from the very beginning of his ministry in Rome, but he also did it earlier, I think, in his ministry in, in Buenos Aires. So it's, it's not only that he's good at that, but also he's unwaveringly clear about what his priorities are. And... I mean, I learned recently, for example, of his visit to Myanmar and Bangladesh, that all those who were closely with him were nervous and anxious. Mm. He was not. He was not. He saw this as central to his ministry, to go to places where a pope has never been, to go to stand alongside the best efforts of those nations, but also to stand for values that were challenging. And obviously he faced great challenges in that journey. But he's excellent. And on the whole, the Holy See, the Vatican, is excellent at knowing how to judge when to push, when to respect, when to push again, and when, in that sense, to be prophetic about what is essential for good community for good humanity. Mm. So he is remarkable. Mm. And I do find around London that people often ask me about Pope Francis, mm -hmm. associate me with Pope Francis, and in a way uh, have a fresh regard uh, for the Catholic Church, not minimising our problems or not minimising the difficulties that many people see in the projects of faith in our world, but nevertheless seeing something which declares that at our heart, our commitment to humanity is a reflection of God's commitment to humanity. And talking of that community aspect of us living out our faith, that brings us quite nicely to your book. Uh, it's called Hope in Action, published by SPCK, Reaching Out to a World in Need. And you really cover a very broad range of subjects where you feel like Christians and the church should be reaching out and being involved in society and, and offering that kind of hope. Um, what was it that made you sit down and write a book on this particular subject? Well, I once heard um, somebody explain uh, what he saw to be the difference between our everyday use of the word hope and the Christian virtue of hope. And I found his comment very provocative, uh, and in a way it lies at the heart of this, because he said, in a slightly exaggerated way, that the everyday understanding of hope is that I've got such a solid present 
you know, I might have paid the mortgage or I can afford it. I've got a job. I can see where I'm going. And maybe I've got a family. We're okay. And therefore, I can face an uncertain future from a very certain present. And he said that's the normal everyday meaning of hope. He said Christian hope is different. Christian hope says I can live this uncertain present in the sure knowledge of a certain future. So hope for the Christian is a summons from God, if you like, to live through this time knowing that there is mm. a solid future, in, certainly in eternity, and an aim that we have which reflects that gift of heaven to try and create here. Mm. So we have a lovely phrase in our Advent prayers that this, this is that, that faith gives us the dare to hope. So hope is an act of faith, but hope is something that stirs, in up, stirs us up in us the desire to do something. I say in the book, hope, this kind of hope, is what gets me out of bed in the morning. And if I don't have that hope, I kind of reach for the duvet and want to just turn over. <laughs> and, and that hope, though, is, is outworked in some fairly um, significant ways in the book. I think one, one chapter in particular, which is uh, entitled Ending Human Trafficking and Slavery. I mean, the first question for a lot of people is, is that really possible? Is it, is it really possible that we can live in a world where human trafficking doesn't exist, Give, given how widespread we know it is, given how often complicated um, such a huge issue is, and yes, there are many Christians and many charities working against it, but a world without human trafficking and slavery, is that really possible? Well, I believe in Jesus. I believe in his victory over sin and death. I know that human trafficking is a great evil. It's a sin. And I believe that working with him and in the power of his grace, this is our project. And it won't be conquered because of me. It won't be con conquered because of all of these things. But we work and proclaim that possible conversion of heart that turns us away from every sin. And this is an evil that really does affect the body of humanity and therefore is a deep wound in the body of humanity and in the eyes of faith, therefore, in the body of Christ. So that's my motivation. That's my hope. Um, now, it, 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 you know, you could say, how is this effort working out in practice? Well, I don't think we're making much of an impact on the overarching picture. But I do know that in the last three years, public consciousness about human trafficking has changed dramatically. And I do know uh, that there are, in this country at least, an increasing number of people being rescued from modern-day slavery. But I also know, if you like, that the supply chain of victims is huge. If you think there are, what is it, 42 billion people misplaced in the world. So they're all vulnerable. They're not necessarily going to be trafficked, but they are there. And human traffickers are relentless. And we know that as we tackle one place like Edu State in Nigeria, 
which has been a huge source of recruiting or of capturing of modern-day slaves, they move somewhere else. And as I say, these huge movement of displaced people uh, is, is, is the supply chain of victims. Mm. And the, so the, the, when you look at, in that sense, world poverty, the, 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 the outbreak of violence, mm. the, all of those things that create homelessness and displaced people, they're all part of the picture. Mm. And so they really are, this is a huge challenge, but mm. we must not lose heart. Is this, though, why actually the church has a unique place in society? Because we know that God changes hearts. And, and as you say, that people, if they're caught in one place, may simply move to another. But actually, if we can get the message of the Christian gospel to people, right. it will change their hearts. And, and, and almost it's the inward change that has to happen in some of these cases. You know. Well, in all of us. It, it has to happen in all of us. And I think the, the, the Catholic Church in particular has an important role to play because probably more than any other Christian church, it, it has a kind of worldwide structure. It has a network. I remember the Metropolitan Police Commissioner was asked a few years ago by a rather cynical journalist, why on earth are the police working with the Catholic Church? And his answer was interesting. He said, look... Human trafficking is a global evil network. The Catholic Church is a global network for good. If I can get these two confronting each other, then we have a huge ally in this work against this terrible crime. As I say, the book covers many topics like this, very serious topics where you want to see um, Christians... You know, hope, hope in action is the title of the book, and that's that's what you want to see us do: put our hope into action. There is one chapter, though, that I, I wondered if if it was difficult to to even contemplate writing this chapter, and that was on sexual abuse, given how the Catholic Church is still perceived by many people in this country, and some of the scandals that have, have happened. Was it was it difficult to sit down and and try and write a few pages on on that topic to even to even address it? Well, fifteen years ago, it would have been very difficult. But over these last 15 years, uh, the Catholic Church has worked very hard, not just to put in place you know, the, the procedures and the protective measures that we should do, but much more importantly, and this is very difficult, to really understand the experience of being a victim. That's the most difficult thing and the most important thing. And to be quite honest, I think it's... For me personally, uh, it's the struggle of trying to do that and spending time listening to painful, painful stories that has, if you like, given me the spur, given me the determination to work with victims of trafficking. Mm. It's often, I think as everybody knows, it, it, it's difficult for the church when some of its people have perpetrated this offence, we're not necessarily in the best place to provide the support for the victim because that relationship is a very broken relationship. And it, the, the deep tragedy of the abuse of youngsters in the church is the relationship which is damaged is not just with the church, but it actually goes through to their relationship with God, which is which is a terrible, terrible thing. Uh, so it, it 
partly because we are struggling with that, and we have struggled with that for many years now, that I think we find, I find personally, a great desire to see in, the, in another group of victims uh, a very important response that I must make. Mm. One of the people who has endorsed the book is Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And I know he's spoken publicly before about your your friendship. Mm. Many have, have said that this is quite a historic moment, actually, for the Church of England and, and for the Catholic Church in terms of having two leaders who are friends um, is actually quite significant if you look at history. Um, is, is too much being made of that, or is, is this a, a positive development? Well, it's a reality, and it's a very important reality, and for me it's a great joy. Um, I'm not sure it's that new. I think this has happened possibly less in the public eye uh, with certainly the last two archbishops of Westminster. Um, but today, you know, with this fast-moving social media, these things are more quickly out and about. And nor would I wish to confine it to Archbishop Justin and myself. So just recently, for example, I was giving evidence to a select committee of the House of Lords on civic engagement. But I did it sitting next to, sitting with the chief rabbi. Mm. And so we could speak shoulder to shoulder, side by side, with great understanding between us. Mm. And in a way, most of the times making the same points, occasionally being a bit diverse, mm. but I think giving clear evidence that when people think that you know we're a society without much cohesion, without much mutual understanding, and when they think that's because of the different religious beliefs and the religious faiths, they're wrong. Mm. You know, the real problem lies not between those who believe in God, but it lies between those who do believe in God and others who are just puzzled by the whole thing have never really thought about it and just pick up the stones that are lying around to throw at something they don't understand. That's where the real challenge for our society lies. The level of religious illiteracy in this country really is quite considerable and it's a real obstacle to social cohesion and a sharing of a vision. Well, Cardinal Vincent Nichols, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm sorry we're out of time, but thank you so much for joining us today on The Profile. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for joining us on The Profile here today on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Howes. To access this show as a podcast and hear past episodes, you can visit our website. It's premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile. Coming up next, though, here on Premier Christian Radio, it is Dave Rose with Premier Playback.